This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeople Hello out there and welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Demp. And I have no idea why his inflection is like <laughs> I was that. Say that. I'm John Rojas. I was just messing with it. I got a question for you, John. You ever get up to like maybe a top uh, top of a tower or you're on the third story of a mall and you fear that your legs are gonna throw you off of it? Uh, from time to time, I think. It's not really that I, well, maybe I do. Like, I don't know. what's holding me back? Yeah. That like, sometimes I wonder if, I don't want to jump, but what if my body just made me? Or, what if my mind just made me? And the reason I thought about that, this week's an incredible conversation. We talked to Christine Montross, and she works with people with extreme forms of mental illness, ranging from schizophrenia to things that I've I've never I don't even know what the name of it is but people who eat light bulbs and nails and I mean sad stuff but what we go on to talk about is the mind it's a crazy place and your reality is really made up of your perceptions it's the way your brain perceives things and it's an individual basis yeah, the mind really is a powerful thing, and I feel like there's this stigma for people that have mental illness. But when you think about it, man, our minds are more powerful than the biggest supercomputers. Yeah, I just saw an article the other week that said we finally developed a computer that can perform like a second or a tenth of a second of a brain function, and it takes the computer 40 minutes to do the calculations. So That's bizarre. Yeah, it just... We're nowhere close to computers that are as advanced as our minds, but yet when somebody has a mental illness or any of these symptoms, people are like, they're scared to go to the doctor or talk to somebody. It's and bizarre. And think about that. Even our, our best-made computers have glitches all the time. So how come our minds can't have glitches? And they do. And it's crazy. So we're going we're gonna to dive into Christine. Really interesting. Her most recent book's called Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. And I, I think you get it all from that title, The Mind in Crisis. It can happen in the blink of an eye. She talks about some of the most painful experiences are when parents uh, see their, their son, you know, 18-year-old son, have their first episode, whether it be manic or whatever, because it happens a lot around around 18 years old. And you just don't understand it. So we dive into that. And we also briefly touch on her other book, which is called Body of Work, Meditations on Mortality from the Human Anatomy Lab. Also really crazy. She talks about when she was working with a cadaver and the things she learned from that. So in general, guys, this it's just fun stuff to talk about. John, why don't you tell them a little bit about Christine and we'll just dive in. 
Dr. Montross is an assistant professor and co-director at Brown University. She's also a staff psychiatrist at Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. She completed medical school and residency training at Brown University, where she received the Isaac Ray Award in Psychiatry and the Martin B. Keller Outstanding Brown Psychiatry Resident Award. That's a mouthful. That as is, is a mouthful. As Jeez. is, you know, a lot of the people we interview, their bios go on and on. And another cool thing, she studied poetry. She was an English teacher. So her writing isn't just that of a doctor. So she can really get her thoughts across well. So we're going to turn it over to Christine. Feel free to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Visit us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And we hope you enjoy. Christine, thank you again so much for being on the show. As I was mentioning, you know, your books and your writing, it's it's such a fantastic mix of experience and just attention-grabbing content, plus your writing style, given your background. So I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about is you have an interesting background, having been an English teacher and then studying poetry, and now with your work in psychiatry and things like that, could you kind of... Walk us through how you got to where you are and how you felt about that journey. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, so definitely a circuitous path, as you mentioned, and and I think I first, um, I think it probably makes sense to to first talk about my graduate school. So after college, I started um, a creative writing MFA degree um, at the University of Michigan, and that was a two year program. And while I was in that program, writing poetry, which was this wonderful two years of time during which my whole job was to read and write poems, uh, I started becoming really fascinated with ideas about the mind. Um, And I think I developed at the time these pretty romantic ideas about mental illness. I think madness is such evocative terrain um, that I, I started writing these poems that had elements of um, kind of um, musings on madness within them. And then after I finished the MFA degree, as you say, I went and taught high school English in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the school where I taught um, was in kind of a tough area with um, a large percentage of children who had been um, expelled from their own schools or who were on legal probation of some kind. And I started to see these um, not at all romantic ideas of mental illness, these really clear ways in which psychosocial stressors and psychiatric disease were affecting the lives of these children, whether it was in their families or in themselves. So I think that experience for me was a real confluence of these kind of intellectualized ideas I'd had about the mind and then seeing how they played out in real life um, and really caused suffering and struggle in um, in the students that I was teaching. So I started to think as I was teaching high school about, you know, I found myself really intrigued by the brain and started thinking about maybe a career shift away from teaching, also because I was not a great high school teacher. <laughs> um, but I, I at that point, I started really considering maybe did I want to be a psychologist? Did I want to be a social worker? And the more I researched it, the more I thought we were learning so much about the brain that um, psychiatry was really the 
field that would allow me to understand the most about uh, about the brain and what was going on within it. So um, I started taking night classes in chemistry at a community college after my teaching job, and um, and then in the next year um, started applying to medical schools and and went down that path. It is a fascinating background, and one of the things you know when you said kind of the mental illness aspect in the mind and madness in general, you kind of romanticized it. You know, I feel like from an outsider's perspective that is extremely interested in this, I do the same thing. And then it's also perpetuated by watching CSI Miami or whatever when they there's this killer who's so crazy and out there. But now that you have the experience of working in the high school as well as your current patients – where has that idea taken you to? I mean, I'm sure you're still just as interested, but does it have just a much more real effect on how detrimental it is to society or how's that work? Yeah, I think the way you phrase it is exactly right. I think that I, I remain completely fascinated by the brain and all the ways in which it can derail. Um, and the brain does have these wild and wildly interesting capacities um, for creating these alternate worlds, these alternate beliefs, um, and it's and it's sometimes impossible not to get swept up in um, how compelling the capacity for difference is in people's brains, and especially when illness is at play. So even as I've come to understand more about the experiences that people have, I certainly have not lost that fascination. That being said, my work now is on an inpatient, uh, in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. So I work on two different units that are um, kind of psychiatric versions of an ICU. So these are people who are very, very gravely psychiatrically ill. They might be um, floridly psychotic. They might be paranoid. They might um, be very manic. They might be actively trying to kill themselves or hurt other people. So people really in the throes of significant mental illness. And so while I always say there's never a dull moment in my job, and part of what I love about my job is that each patient is really distinct, one from the next, and I'm always interested in in their symptoms and their stories, it's absolutely also concurrent now with the unimaginable struggles that my patients endure. So paired with that fascination is now a really deepening understanding of uh, what a life is like for someone who um, is enduring these symptoms, uh, and it and it's it's pretty humbling to see the things that my patients go through and the symptoms that they live with, and how they try to reconcile that with their day to day lives. And you know, right off the bat, you said something that's just so interesting. You know how the brain can derail and create these what seem to be alternate worlds, and it makes you realize that we are such a function of our, our consciousness. You know, it's the way we interpret the world around us it is so independent uh, amongst all of us, but can really shape everything, the entire span of our life on this planet. So what I was wondering is, what are the main causes? How do we just sometimes just snap or maybe grow into it? I know that the period between maybe 18 and 25, I think around there is when a lot of people develop these things. What happens and why are we made that way? Yeah. The why are, why are we made that way question um, I think is, 
is more about the general fallibility of all organisms. I mean, I think when you, there's not, mental illness in some ways is more captivating in that regard because it is paired with our identity. But, you know, just as our minds can become ill and work erroneously, so can our hearts uh, become ill and start to beat in an aberrant rhythm. So can our lungs lose capacity. So can our bodies start growing cells that are not meant to grow in our bodies and, you know, multiply at exponential rates in, in cancerous growths. So the truth about our existence as biological organisms is that things can go awry in our physical symptoms. And the mind is not immune from that in any capacity. Um, but it sometimes feels as though it ought to be because our brains feel as though they're under our own control. Um, so I think that that's disarming um, in that sense. I think the question of where do these diseases come from that you raise, you know, psychiatry is such a broad discipline and within it are so many really different diseases. So on the one hand, I may see someone who has delusional beliefs, who believes that um, her landlord has implanted uh, spying devices in her wall, who believes that her family members are out to get her, then I may walk into the next room and have someone who is absolutely in touch with, with reality, but instead is in the grips of a profound depression, no longer has the will to live, um, feels as though uh, he or she would be better off dead and is, is plagued by constant thoughts of, of how to commit suicide. And in the next room, I may have someone who um, can't let go of anxious ruminations, who must do um, various obsessive rituals in order to try to quell the anxiety that's overcome them. So these are very, very different and distinct diseases, and the causes of them differ one from the next. The um, the courses of them differ one from the next. So, um, you know, the course of bipolar illness is different from the course of schizophrenia, is different from the course of an anxiety disorder or, you know, an intellectual disability, someone who is, whose brain is, is halted at an earlier age. So um, it's hard to generalize about from whence these things come other than just to say the body has that capacity to become ill in, in all its realms. You mentioned that, and I, and I love this too, because I was just talking to my dad about this, but you mentioned that the brain can malfunction the same way that your organs, such as your heart, or even arms, legs, that type of thing can malfunction. That really is kind of something I feel that is almost like a new concept, or at least people are starting to accept that as a concept, because for the longest time, like mental illness was just looked at as oh, this person went crazy or something like that. But now we recognize that we can treat the brain and we can take care of the brain and all that type of stuff. When did we see that shift from kind of just shoving it under the rug to now trying to actively treat it and recognize people with mental illness? You know, I think it's been an ongoing shift. I certainly think that the brains, the growth of the brain sciences and the sort of biological perspective on mental illness has really bloomed in the last decade or so. Um, but I think behavior is complex. And I think we're also starting to understand that, you know, mental illness and the symptoms that people that people encounter with it are multifactorial. So you absolutely can have biologic bases for addiction, but you also have behavioral bases for addiction. And, and part of the, um, and you can have biologic 
a biologic and genetic basis that makes you um, prone to certain mental illnesses. And you also may have environmental or behavioral components that contribute to ex exacerbate those things. So I, I think that it, it's too, I think there was a period of time during which there was a fantasy that we would uncover a neurologic uh, traceable um, etiology for all of our mental illnesses and be able to treat them in the same way that we give a pill for high blood pressure and your high blood pressure goes down. I think we're starting to understand that it's far more complex than that. But I also think, again, you know, linking psychiatry to medicine more generally, I think it's not dissimilar to when we see um, people with diabetes who struggle to control their diets in a way that um, helps their body work with their blood sugar or people with cholesterol, high cholesterol or high blood pressure who, um, you know, struggle with their, their diets and their exercise. You know, all of these factors that contribute um, make a mark and, and play a role. And so I think it's um, we're, we're complex beings. You mentioned there about medication, say, for diabetes and, and this and that. And I know that there are a plethora of medications for mental illness. And I think we've interviewed one or two people who deal in the realm that you do. And, and I always want to ask them, is medication a, a godsend or is it really just a quick fix? Are we patching things or are we saving lives? What do you see? As I'd imagine, that's a very big part of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't think that medication is either a quick fix or a godsend. I think that it's a tool in my practice and in the practice of my colleagues. And I think like any tool, it has to be used wisely and in the right circumstances. Um, so I think that there are people for whom uh, medication is life-saving. Is that a godsend? In, in certain realms, yes. On the other hand, some of my patients find it to be life-saving, but also find it to be a hassle or find it to be life-saving and at the same time have side effects that are troublesome or burdensome to them. I think that psychiatric medication in general is poorly understood and, and gets a pretty bad rap. Mm -hmm. But I think it goes back again to this idea of mental illness as being something that, you know, we should all really be able to sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get a grip on this. And so I think there is a certain degree of unfairness mm -hmm. in seeing psychiatric medication as, as a quick fix or as a Band-Aid or as a way of not feeling and dealing with your real problems. And I think that the truth is is far different from that, that the people who, who I see are people whose illnesses are interfering with their abilities to have have lives that are not just productive, but but happy and safe. Um, and I think in those instances, um, medication, while not a godsend, may just be a necessity for their lives. You know, it's so interesting that I've never thought about, given all the times I've kind of wondered about these things is I think a lot of it comes down to we're used to taking a pill and fixing it. So, and it's, and that is a, a beautiful thing. I mean, I had a sinus infection that got out of control and took a Z pack for five days and it instantly fixes it. Right. So right, it's like your right. body has a problem. You take an antibiotic, which is fairly naturally occurring, you know, I mean, although synthesized, but and then your body, okay, thanks, I'm back to normal. Yeah. So I think it's that idea, hey, I'm going crazy or whatever. You know, that's probably not the PC way of putting it, but, <laughs> um, you know, I don't have the doctorate. But and, and then, okay, I need you to readjust my brain chemicals, and then I want to get back to normal. 
that's probably where the difficulty comes in. And I think there's a whole spectrum of, um, you know, again, because the field of psychiatry is so vast and because personal experience is so vast, one sinus infection looks a lot like another sinus infection, looks a lot like another sinus infection. And we're able to really identify these are the organisms that cause sinus infections and these are the medications that will get rid of those organisms. And so there is, in some ways, a, a greater depth of understanding of some of those problems. But absolutely, um, you know, when when I have patients who have um, auditory hallucinations and they are hearing voices and those voices are constantly plaguing them and are often telling them to do things that are are dangerous and scary. And then the fact that we have antipsychotic medications that if they take them regularly can cause those voices to abate. I mean, that's a, a more substantial gift than getting rid of a sinus infection, no <laughs> yes, matter it how, is. how painful the sinus infection. So, but again, um, you know, I think there is, um, there's judgment around uh, mental illness and no one thinks it's your fault or that you're not working hard to get rid of your sinus infection. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think when someone is depressed or anxious, there's a sense of, um, of volition or willfulness that's different. Um, and I also think, you know, there there is a component of behavior and control that's a piece of it for people too. So no matter um, no matter how much you engaged in some kind of of work or therapy, you are not going to change the course of your sinus infection. But but you know, for most of my patients, it's a combination of medication and also a really hard look at how their lifestyles and their sleep and their eating habits and their relationships and the the circumstances they put themselves in how all of these things can can contribute to their mental health so it's not it's not as simple as an antibiotic but that being said um, sometimes it's as the medication is as important as an antibiotic do you think we're doing enough to recognize mental health problems and mental illness earlier. And when I say we, I mean like the normal public, whether it be a patient themselves recognizing that they have an issue or a family member recognizing that, you know, somebody that they love has an issue. Because just in the past couple of years, you see all these tragic events that have happened, whether it be, you know, in Colorado, Connecticut, or in DC at the Navy Yard, it all stems around mental illness where, People look at it and say, you know what, looking back, we now see that there were signs of things like the guy at the Navy Yard that was hearing voices and he was told to do this. Do you think we're doing enough to recognize these things early enough? I think we are not doing enough, period. I, I, I feel strongly about the fact that we're not doing enough. I think that um, the, the truth about these events is that they force us to look at um, how people slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's both positive and unfortunate. It's positive because um, it, it forces us to acknowledge that precise, specific cases of people who sought help and were not able to get help or who showed symptoms and those symptoms were not recognized. But it's also unfortunate because it's such a small percentage of violent crimes that are committed by mentally ill people that I think it it erroneously casts the mentally ill in a light that's troublesome. But I think think all of this arises out of the fact that we are not doing enough 
to provide adequate care for the mentally ill. And I wrote a I wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times back in August just about the woeful inadequacies in outpatient care that we have for uninsured or underinsured mentally ill. And and this means that we're really electing as a society to not offer basic treatment to people who need basic treatment and who often could be very stable with adequate basic treatment. But instead, we're saying basic treatment is too expensive. We don't want to commit to that. And the result is that people are um, not able to be maintained on their medications. They run out of their medicines. They can't afford them. They end up in emergency rooms. They end up hospitalized. They end up in danger or endangering others. And that the costs of this turn out to be far, far greater than the costs would be for us to provide a modicum of basic treatment for the mentally ill among us. So I absolutely don't think we're doing enough. Um, And I think, you know, when you say, do you think we should recognize symptoms in our family members and our friends? I think the sad truth, whether we're talking about mental illness or civil rights or, um, you know, any, any host of things is that we often don't care about these issues until it affects someone in our own lives. And so I think that the more that people are open about their illnesses or open about their experiences, that may be an important way for society as a whole to commit to the ethical treatment of mental illness, which I think at this point we're only beginning to do. I I love that term, ethical treatment of mental illness, because, I mean, Chris and I are just looking at each other and we're just – you raised so many great points about that, and I just I hope people were paying attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that with um, you know with the parity legislation that's that's um, now happening, I think we're beginning to do that. I think the Affordable Care Act has some promise for giving access to to care, but I think a lot of it's just going to be a good hard long look at how we as a citizenry want to treat the most vulnerable among us, and I think the message for the last few decades has been not very well. Yeah. yeah. And I actually, I read that article prior to this interview. You're referring to the woman who ate cutlery, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I read it because the title got me and then I didn't realize it was going to go into the route of how we treat them as a society, but I, I loved it. And by the way, I have a list of questions and I've gotten to one of them because <laughs> I just keep getting this stuff so good. But, and this is another random one, but you mentioned that as a society have to determine how we want to help these people. And I think a lot of us sit at home, hear you and go, look, this all makes sense. Let's do it, right? Let, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. But it's the same people that are, are saying that the Affordable Care Act is terrible, which it's only a portion of that. So I don't really mean to bring that into it. But right. what do we do? I mean, is this just something that Congress is sitting in Congress and until those you know, powerful few make a decision, it's going to change? Or do you see how, how as a society, we can take this cause and, and move it forward? I think um, legislation is, is a big piece of it. I don't think it's the only piece. So I do think consistent legislative pressure on um, ensuring basic fundamental health care that includes mental health care is a critical piece. I think in addition, uh, medicine in general um, is being increasingly influenced by corporations and by insurance companies. And so um, it gets harder and harder to provide care for people when you have to justify it constantly. Um, You know, there are 
um, physicians and other people whose job it is to challenge clinical care of my patients and other other physicians' patients. So, you know, if we elect to keep someone hospitalized for more than four or five days, insurance companies will call over and over again and over and over again to say, we don't think this person should be hospitalized. Can you justify your criteria for hospitalizing this patient? We're not going to approve another day of hospitalization. Um, and And what happens is that oftentimes the the pressures are so great and the incentives for the insurance companies are so high to get the people out of expensive hospitalizations that we end up on a real battlefront with them. And so the choices available to clinicians are to continue to wage war, which we must do, so to to get um, adequate care for our patients, but then huge portions of doctors' time is taken up during the day with these phone calls, these insurance reviews, Um, And then oftentimes, if the insurance companies deny um, authorization of care, then you're stuck in a position where you as a, you know, you feel like the clinical decision is to keep a person hospitalized. They need that care, but you know now that it's going to be their financial responsibility or the financial responsibility of the hospital to absorb and if someone, you know, many of my patients can't even afford their $4 medications, let alone the cost of a hospital stay. So I think the corporations that are part of the healthcare system these days are, are also a large part of the problem. And I think oftentimes they're um, short-sighted in what they elect to pay for and what they don't elect to pay for because when people get discharged prematurely, they come back quickly. Right. Uh, they fail their outpatient care. It's it's not a, a long term plan. Yeah, it's so frustrating, and I, I feel like you should be able to say when they call you, "Why are you keeping this person?" You can go, um, "Because I'm the doctor." Click, <laughs> you know. So yeah, they, they don't like that. <laughs> right. I mean, I know that's not how it works, but that is that's frustrating. <laughs> Well, I'm going to get to this one this one question, glaring question I do have on my list because it's something I've thought about a lot. And it, it goes into, you know, you have these two books out, which we talked about in the intro, but you have Body of Work and Falling into the Fire. And Falling into the Fire is the most recent one that I want to focus on. But in Body of Work, you know, you talk about uh, your experience with a cadaver, basically, and, and discovering the physical aspect of a dead person, dead, you know, a dead body. When you're digging into literally a corpse, and the way you put it in the book is very, I don't know, it's much better than I can do it, but what does that do to your mind realizing how we're all going to die one day and how we we are this magnificent organism, but all of these things at one point will be cold and lifeless? Does it change the way you look at your own mortality and does it shape your view of the world and every morning you wake up? You know, body of work, which was the story of my first year in medical school and dissecting a cadaver um, in human anatomy lab, um, absolutely was in part an exploration of of that very piece of the the wonder within the human body, but also the fragility of the human body um, that that is really apparent. And I think as, as young doctors to be, it's such an important lesson, um, 
Of course, the anatomical landscape is an important lesson. Of course, you have to learn body parts and which vessels connect where and, and which nerve structures are, are where in the body. But it's really also, um, you know, it throws mortality right up in front of your face. And I think there's no better way to recognize that the profession into which you're entering is one that's about this fundamental difference of life and death and that that you are engaged in a really primitive struggle um, with your patients. And I, I think, you know, one of the reasons that that I feel so fortunate to be a physician and also a writer is because I think that medicine is at its nature, you know, as, as doctors, we're present in these primal moments of life, right? We're, we're present at birth. We're present at death. We're present at moments of diagnosis and at, at cure. And I feel like in those moments of human life and human existence, the kind of layers with which we pat ourselves and the facades that we put on all just are stripped away. There's nothing more bare and true than the moment that um, a birth takes place, the moment that someone dies, the moment that a diagnosis is is given to a family. So those are those are moments that beg to be written about um, because it's also the stuff of literature. I mean, this is the these are the primitive truths of life. So I think um, what what that experience of dissection gave to me was just an awareness of the undercurrent of humanity that runs through a career in medicine, and definitely. There were plenty of freak out moments I had in it. I mean, you hold a human heart in your hands and you realize that some of the interior walls of the heart that keep your body running are the thickness of a worn T-shirt. And you think, oh, my Lord, this is what's keeping me alive. Sure. Profound moments of freak out and concern, but also a real gratitude and sense of marvel as well. Yep. And I can imagine that. It's, It's a fascinating thing. And then your most recent book, Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis, really is that. I mean, you talk about some of the most uh, crazy, out there, insane stories and encounters with people that are just struggling. I mean, you, you realize that it is a struggle. I think it's so fascinating. You talk about how people are doing things to themselves, whether it be ingesting light bulbs or hearing voices and all that stuff. But a lot of them outside of that are rational people. Well, and I think that, you know, when people ask me why I wrote the book, um, so much of the motivation for me was that I think we tend to hold people with mental illness at a real arm's length and say, you know, these are crazy symptoms. This is, this is, this person is very, very different than I am. This is something really uh, foreign to me. And I think one of my aims in the book was to say that like it or not, there is this shared humanity that we have with uh, you know, among us, that the people who, the woman who's ingesting light bulbs and the, the man who wishes to amputate his healthy arm, they, if we look, if we pause and instead of um, uh, gaping at them and feeling shocked by them and instead pause, as I try to do in the book, and really try to understand what brings someone to the point where this seems like the right course of action. How do we understand someone who behaves in a way that feels so incomprehensible to us? 
then I think when we allow ourselves the opportunity to do that and to try to understand people with more depth, then we see that in fact, we all have the capacity to move along this spectrum in a way that means that we're just as vulnerable as the patients that I see, even if our presentations aren't as dramatic as theirs. It's true. And and I think, as you said, it, it takes, oftentimes it takes a personal experience, either yourself, somebody close to you, to realize that it, uh, it can happen to anybody. I mean, as you mentioned, being a fallible species and, and having fallible hardware, basically, yeah. is I mean, I, troubling. I, I, op- I open the book um, with a quote by the Christian mystic Simone Vale, and I kind of return to a piece of that in the end of the book. But, but she essentially says that really to understand human suffering, we have to acknowledge that every single one of us could at any moment lose what is most fundamental to us, including our own identities, including the things that feel most a part of us. And so I think if we're honest about mental illness, we have to be honest that, you know, people that we love become demented and lose their minds. Mm -hmm. People that we love have strokes and become diminished in in their abilities. People have become brain injured and lose their, um, their ability to function in, in their professions. People become profoundly depressed and want to die. And these are, these are things that could afflict any of us. And just because at any one moment, some of us are more fortunate and are not afflicted by those things doesn't mean that over the course of our lives, we or other people that we love will not be. In fact, the opposite is far more likely. Mm-hmm. I have one more question for you that I think you are probably, you you and people in your profession, the only ones that can answer this is, and, and I read this quote somewhere, I can't remember, but it said, you can sit with the desperate in their darkest moments. And I wonder what what is that like? I mean, when you sit across from someone who understands that the things they're doing to themselves, the things they're thinking are really so irrational, but there's nothing they can do and they're just broken. What is your first kind of course of action? What have you learned? Well, I think understanding the brokenness and really, um, I think one piece is to be heartbroken with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. when I see parents, for example, of an 18-year-old who's having a first psychotic break, the understanding that sets in of, uh, you know, uh, their child who potentially now has what's essentially a terminal illness, you know, something like schizophrenia, um, that moment is a moment in which everyone in the room should, should share in the heartbreak. So I think there's a there's a joining with that is an important piece of the treatment where acknowledging the struggle is is an important part of of the the medicine. Um, that being said, you know people ask me all the time how hard, how do you how do you deal with people who are suffering so greatly? How do you not take it home with you every day? How does your life not become drenched in misery when you're drenched in the misery of other people? And, and one of the things that I say is. Um, not only do I see people in these moments of great despair, but I also see on a daily basis moments where people overcome the most unbelievable psychological and social circumstances. So there's also this incredibly inspiring and hopeful piece to mental illness. Um, And I think you know, when people are overcoming odds and when people are, are struggling against symptoms and, and somehow finding stability and cure and support in the midst of them, that's incredibly inspiring. So, um, you know, like most jobs, there, there are 
both parts of it. And like any full life, there are equal measures of, of joy and of sorrow. And I think that's certainly true in my job. Well, that's, that's a fantastic explanation. And that's, it's a great point. I know we actually, we spoke with, I think it was our like second or third episode, Dr. Barry Bernfeld, who deals with, I, I can't even, it's called primal therapy. But I remember he said the same thing, which was every day I hear people crying and bringing up the worst of their past. But in that same moment, I see them make breakthroughs and that's what kind of carries me on. So it's interesting 120 episodes later to kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, still be able to draw that comparison. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Christine, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Your books are incredible. Your writing is something that I really would urge everyone to kind of take a look at because you can bring your profession of being a psychiatrist as well as your experience being a writer and merge the two. For our listeners who want to find more out about you, where can they kind of follow you? I know you write in a lot of different places. Where's the best place for them to go? So, um, you know, I have a, a website that's just christinemontross.com and I often post articles that I've written uh, there and certainly links to, to the books and press about the books and also um, places to buy the books should people be so inclined. <laughs> so that's probably a good central place for people to start who are interested in doing so. Fantastic. And we will link to both your website and your books at smartpeoplepodcast.com. So, Again, just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Really uh, great conversation and enjoyed learning about what you do. Chris and John, thanks so much. Nice talking to both of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Christine Montross. I'm going to ask one quick favor of you guys. Please head over to iTunes and leave a review for Smart People Podcast. Leaving a star review and a comment really does help us. We actually got contacted by some people because of some of the reviews that are on we iTunes. Did. That's true. So I know I ask week after week and all that kind of stuff, and it probably gets really redundant, but it does mean the world to us, and it helps the show grow. So if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. I want to crack this top 10 in education. It's really frustrating me. It's been a long time. I think we're at like 20-something right now, 24 yeah, well, we'll grow the show more and more, and we'll get more people to listen, and hopefully the listeners will tell a friend. And the show is thriving. It is thriving. Man, I can't wait till all that comes out. You guys are going to have some good content. Like, for the first time in three years, you will actually get really good blog posts. I mean, we'll still have the blog posts that are just, you know, they're, they're decent. They let you know what's going on. But hopefully some real analysis by the hosts. I don't know. I'm excited about it. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page. It's the easiest way to support the show, unless you want to send us money via PayPal. You I, can also do that. I just licked the microphone. Stop licking the microphones. We Thanks don't for that. listening, guys. Tune in next week for another great episode.